I believe we have a friend in common. A Mr. Q. He's not a friend. That's what he said about you. Listen to me. Have nothing to do with him. I have no interest in being part of some whatever this is. So do yourself a favor. Walk away. I can't allow Renee to complete this mission. Stay away from her. I could say the same to you. I don't have a choice. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith and joining me on the bridge. Well, this is Tyler Orton. Um, crying his eyes out just a little <laughs> bit after the emotional beats that I felt when Patrick Stewart and John Delancey embraced Cam. I'm just picking myself up off the floor. Mm. I just, my, my, my emotions are getting the best of me right now. I'm sorry. I just thought maybe you were having traumatic flashbacks to your grade school cat. <laughs> it's possible. Which is a term that human beings use all the time when they refer to pets from their childhood. <laughs> okay, Cam, so what are we tackling today on Subspace Transmissions just two weeks out before the Season 3 premiere of Star Trek Picard? We are going to debate how to fix Star Trek Picard by taking a deep dive back into Star, uh, Star Trek Picard Season 2, which Tyler and I both did full rewatches of. This may have been... The biggest ask in terms of research I've had in the history of this podcast, I got to be honest. <laughs> well, don't worry. I'm going to get you to rewatch season four of Discovery in just a few months upon <laughs> the uh, season five premiere. So, yeah, this is just prep work, right? There will not be a how to fix Star Trek Discovery podcast episode. <laughs> no, I, I hate to break it to <laughs> listeners. Um, I, I remember kind of I, I, as we wrap things up. Last season, I was like, you know what? I can imagine myself rewatching Picard season two. I cannot imagine myself rewatching Discovery season four. That's despite the fact that I think Discovery season four was probably a more competent season. It was just incredibly boring. Cam, will you ever watch Picard season two ever again after this latest rewatch? No. No, I don't think I would ever watch the season of Picard, uh, of this particular season, again. The only other thing I can think of is that if you and I did an episode on, like, craziest bad episodes of Star Trek or something, I might go back to, say, like, the finale of Picard season two and take notes again. But, like, outside of that, for entertainment value, I do not see myself at any time in the future sitting down and working my way through these ten episodes. It was interesting for me, like going through this. So I, you know, spoiler alert, folks. Uh, one of the things that you and I asked at the end of last season was whether this show would work if we're just kind of binge watching, like week to week, or not week to week, but just all at once. And I realize the answer is absolutely not. Uh, I, I can't. I think that I would have had a tougher time binge watching it as a first go. 
rather than just having it week to week, I could like carve out, you know, like 40, 50, sometimes 23 minutes a day to uh, watch <laughs> these season two episodes, you know, because it's only once a week. But, you know, when like you're binge watching something, you kind of feel this obligation to like kind of go through it. I I I think this show I I I I can't imagine people sitting through this entire season and not giving up at a certain point. For me, uh, I think everything up to two of one, which was the one focused on the big kind of caper and the gala, I think it was watchable enough. You know, I enjoyed my okay. Here here are my thoughts, Kim. I enjoyed, I generally enjoyed the first two episodes, the third episode. Uh, so we're talking about the Stargazer and Penance. The third episode was Assimilation in which we actually arrive in LA. I was like, okay, I see what you're trying to do here, you know? And then it, even upon the rewatch, I was going in with an open mind, kind of understanding what the story is going to be about. And I was like, hmm, maybe I can understand better what the character's motivations are, even though they're obscuring this as they always like to do. And just by the time we got to episode six, which I believe was two of one, I, I just, it was painful to sit through what I believe is the shortest live action episode of Star Trek ever put to screen. I was just so unbelievably bored. It, it was giving me like flashbacks to watching, you know, season four of Discovery once again. I just, Cam, on a base level, this does not pass the competency test, not just in terms of storytelling, but just in terms of like production. Yeah. Uh, we can go into it, but like just even stuff like, you know how they would have like musical swells at the end of a mm -hmm. act break and they would immediately like cut to the next act, which would take place in the exact same scene. Yeah. And I, I just, this this I, I i do not understand how you're making a television in 2022 and, and and this is what you're doing like this just seems like incompetence and i i don't know cam so, so those are my initial thoughts um see binge watching season two of picard did not make the series better for me it actually made it worse for me whereas in season one of picard uh it actually made season one of picard better just binge watching it straight through yeah, I, I think the one thing that improved on the rewatch for season two for me was like, there's so many artificial cliffhangers built into the episodes in season two that like having the ability to just quickly move past them into the next episode, I actually kind of preferred because it's not like they had impact the first time through. It wasn't like I spent the whole week going, oh my God, how are they going to get Rios out of like ice detention? I like that when I was doing the binge, it was like, okay, resolved, move on, don't care. Um, so in that regard, eh, maybe a slight improvement. But in terms of like tracking character journeys, because that's always one thing in the like 10 hour movie format, I find very difficult sometimes is to just track character journeys when we have this week apart and it's like, okay, I got to remember what was going on with each character. What did they say in the previous episode? What insights do we have into their, you know, state of where they are right now that sort of stuff is really really hard for me to maintain week to week you know whereas i found um in the rewatch it was like it didn't make any sense like that was one thing i thought maybe there would be a little more value added in having all these kind of you know these stories compressed into this like basically three or four day watch for me 
it really didn't help at all. And things like some of the motivations did, were no clearer. They were just as janky as they were the first time. And as you said, like the production, this show is so cheap looking. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable because I'm sure it costs money. Um, I don't know. Maybe it was very expensive to get Patrick Stewart on here. Maybe that's where some of the money went. I don't know. But either way, this show looks unbelievably cheap. And I was thinking about it a lot because you had recommended as I went through and did my rewatch, I should listen back to the episode coverage we did week to week when the show was airing anew. And it was just interesting to me that like um, my experience was very similar, but I had way less patience this time for episodes about building up where we were going. The first time there was a lot of like, well, let's see, this could go here or there. Sometimes I found that the most torturous in this in this rewatch. Like that's the sort of stuff I thought might play well. What would be kind of a specific example of one of those? Like I know yeah, what yeah. you're talking about, but what for you was kind of a torturous thing to have to sit through? I found I did enjoy going back to Stargazer and Penance, but in terms yeah. of like yeah, building so up I. this journey back, yeah. But in terms of building up the journey back to like the 24th century or the 21st century, I should say. I found all of that stuff, like the convolutions we had to go to get there. I was like, get to the point, get to the point. Like this stuff is not interesting because it's not character based. It's entirely plot based. So that stuff, I lost a lot of patience and a lot of the wheels spinning. You mean like Seven and Raffi in a car chase in LA, right? <laughs> like that sort of stuff. Well, I mean, that's a little bit later, but even just like getting them to the past. Like the having to set all that stuff up. I just had lost so much patience because I knew where it was going and I just wanted to get there as opposed to spin wheels as we wait to get there. Um, So I even found, honestly, in the first three episodes, I was getting a little impatient, kind of settled into the vibe for a bit. But when there was that episode, uh, Mercy, where they are in the FBI holding cell and being interrogated and whatever, oh, that one I found torturous, even though... When we reviewed it the first time, I actually I think we were both were a little more positive because it actually worked somewhat as a standalone episode. But I was like, this episode is a complete disruption to the series. And there's three of them throughout the series where it just stops everything dead to basically waste an hour. And so like store episodes like that and moments like that in this rewatch, I just I couldn't stand them. And if I can be very specific though, I think the problem with an episode like Mercy though, it's you have those three characters, uh, Agent Wells of the FBI, along with Picard and Guinan, mm-hmm. they just keep repeating the same information again and again and again, you know? And when the audience is way ahead of the characters, it's torture, absolute torture for the audience. And and what I kept finding, though, is like you have scenes with Q and Adam Sung or Adam and Corey or, you know. And the thing is, so the audience witnessed these scenes, but, you know, Picard and company did not. And so we were always kind of ahead of Picard and company. So when you have your main characters that are behind the eight ball there, it's it, it's so frustrating. It, it just fundamentally it does not work from a storytelling perspective and this is what like i don't know like 60 percent of the season was built on and so much of it is artificial because you know i talked about like the disruption of sending them to the fbi but they do that multiple times you know there's the the ice holding cell there is um picard getting hit by the tesla it's like these built-in artificial 
sequences or mo- happenings to just stop the story dead. And all of it feels just... When you look at the original Star Trek shows or whatever, uh, even something like Strange New Worlds, you know, at its best, it's organic storytelling where you're tracking it moment to moment. It feels like natural progressions. Whereas like Picard season two, everything feels like they came up, I don't know, maybe with like the Borg Queen reveal with Agnes. And we're like, how do we get there? And just built everything leading into that I, i'm sure there was other things maybe they want to have picard fall in love i don't know but it's like all these like very like just desperate kind of pandering and often very hacky approaches to how to get to point b but it doesn't even seem like oh, it just seems like the actors seem a little bit confused even when you're watching them on screen one of the most important television viewing experiences for me as a young person who realized like yeah really into tv and movies it was an episode of sliders maybe like season two i think and did you ever watch sliders back in the day cam i didn't no i remember all the hype over it but i never saw it yeah this is uh with uh jerry o'connell as the star who of course now is uh uh commander ransom in the lower deck so it all comes full circle but essentially they have this device it's about the size of a remote control for your television and and uh you push a button and it can help you jump into other dimensions uh kind of parallel earths and there was an episode where everything had kind of been resolved by the 40 minute mark of like a 60 minute episode and then uh, i'm gonna get the nuances of it a little bit wrong but essentially this device had been like randomly stolen and so despite the fact everything had been resolved in the episode, the device was just randomly stolen. It was completely inorganic from what like the characters had been doing to further their own story going on. And I remember as like a eight-year-old, nine-year-old, getting frustrated. It was me recognizing like inorganic storytelling, like stuff that's not based on the decisions and motivations of the characters and how their goals might go up against the goals of other characters, not necessarily antagonists, you know, but that's what drama is, is when goals do not align and conflict that arises from that. Everything about this season, Cam, was just so arbitrary and so inorganic. You know, it's, you know, I just don't understand how this was put to screen. And like my, my best guess is that there are just too many cooks in the kitchen. How many how many producer credits are on this show, sir? Like a billion? <laughs> um, fewer than a phone book. <laughs> you know, so too many cooks in the kitchen, plus you've got executives. And it just didn't seem as if anybody, that there's no auteur drive behind this series, you know? And we, we get that, we watched Andor last year. Yeah. This is not a series I was particularly like, anticipating i was just like ah you know cassie nandor didn't particularly thrill me in rogue one you know (laughs) but you put the pedigree of uh tony gilroy behind it this is an auteur who's allowed to do whatever he wants within the realm of star wars and you and i were a little bit iffy on the series but by the time we got to the halfway mark you and i were all in and it turned out to be one of my favorite shows of last year and you can just tell that there's real there's really no auteur drive behind 
Star Trek Picard, or as I would prefer to call it, you know, Earth Trek colon Patrick Stewart at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't, and we've talked about this, but I don't recognize the Picard of this show. Um, and there's like basic issues to me. Like we have seen Picard have many antagonists in the history of Star Trek. Some of them kind of goofy. Like you look at some of the movies and you're like, ah, some of those villains are, are a little lesser. You know, Dr. Soren, not one of the all-time greatest villains in the history of Star Trek. But never before have I seen a Picard adventure where like the villain doesn't even know him doesn't really have any connection whatsoever. <laughs> you know, Adam Soong has no idea who this man is. Yeah. Q has basically said, oh, this guy Picard's your obstacle. Yeah. And that is what the foundation of the entire driving force of like the entire back half of the season is. He's running this old man down in the street in his car. <laughs> and then this old man is showing up at his house and you've got like Soong storming in with like, you know, Borg-infected mercenaries being like, kill Picard, kill Picard. It's like, he has no idea who this individual is. He doesn't know anything. It's characters doing things just because they've been told to, in this case, by basically a god figure in Q. Um, this might be sacrilege. I don't care. I, I Maybe I was biting my tongue the first time I watched it, or maybe I did not want to admit it. I don't think Brent Spiner gave us a very good performance as Adam Sung. I no. really think it was bad. And I just kind of, my suspicion is that maybe he was directing himself, you know? He was like, I've got this, don't mm -hmm. worry. And I wonder if maybe it, it was meant to be, in the eyes of the writers, more of a subdued performance where he just comes off as unbelievably hammy and it doesn't work. I just, I, I think this is a legit bad performance. And we know that Brent Spiner can deliver good performances and so i just i just don't know like th this season is just completely off the rails in terms of star trek in a way that i've never seen before i would i honestly and i'm not saying this to be like oh new star trek's not real star trek cam you and i have spent the last uh what like five and a half years devoting ourselves <laughs> to discussing and disseminating new star trek we are not haters yeah, I will. And I'm just being honest. I would much rather watch seasons one and two of the next generation than I would seasons one and two of Star Trek Picard, because I honestly think these two seasons and you can tell it's just the writers don't know what they're doing. They don't have any sort of true vision. They don't have a good grasp on these characters. It's just and you, you said before, I 100 percent agree. This does not feel like, you know, like Jean-Luc Picard. And I, the thing that irks me is you, you go on like a lot of the, uh, I don't know, the, the social media and people are like, and I mentioned this on the podcast uh, as we were reviewing the show last season, but it's like a lot of people are like, well, that's called character growth. He's changed since you saw him in Nemesis. Like uh, he, he, he uh, bears no resemblance whatsoever to the character, one of the greatest television characters of all time. It's essentially Patrick Stewart, executive producer. The only reason this series exists is because Patrick Stewart agreed to do it, and he can give so many conditions about what he wants to do, what he won't do, how he wants to perform this role. He was not doing that for seven seasons of The Next Generation. 
he was doing what kind of the writers who had a grasp on the series and the franchise. And I just, I, I, again, maybe sacrilege. I want to give so much more credit to Rick Berman now than I ever did back in the day. Yeah. You know, I just, I honestly think like season two of Picard is perhaps like the biggest travesty that has ever bestowed, you know, the Star Trek franchise up until this day. And I know that sounds dramatic, but I, I'm just horrified by what we got. I, I, am I am I off base here? I, I don't know, Cam. Well, I mean, when you look at the character of Picard, and we did an episode quite a while back. I don't know time. I, I can't keep track of it anymore. But it was an episode called Let That Captain Be My Guide. Right. Yeah. Where we looked into how captains could serve as mentor figures on their respective shows. And we talked at great length about the relationships Picard has on you know TNG and how he has inspired the characters around him. I was, like, making notes while doing my rewatch. I'm like, Picard got Elnor killed. Like, day one, he dragged this poor kid out of basically a nunnery, abandoned him multiple times, got him killed at the start of season two. And shows zero remorse, zero guilt, never really acknowledges Elnor at all. It's entirely Raffi's story about feeling guilty about it. And it extends beyond that. This is a ragtag group of damaged people. We see it. You know, Raffi's got issues. Rios does. Agnes does. What sort of mentorship or leadership does Picard display throughout the course of this entire season that is inspiring? He gives a, like, pep talk to Rene Picard. Uh Outside of that, there's nothing. Like, you can strip away the Starfleet stuff, his physical, you know, status. He's not the muscular dude he was, say, in the movies anymore. But that leadership, that inspiring quality should continue on. That should be the one part of that character that remains kind of eternal. And it is 100% absent from this version of the character. Well, Cam, to quote the people from social media, (laughs) that's called character growth. I'm just like, oh, folks. Like, and and I want to say this. Like, I I know we're coming off like haters or we we love this franchise. We really do. And like, 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 we're loving, like... Lord Dex, Strange New Worlds, Prodigy, you know, like we we've bestowed like a lot of praise, you know. So it's not just like we're mm-hmm. Kurtzman haters. It's we're people that like like and like we enjoy good storytelling and yeah. organic uh, character growth. And just just think about the Raffi and and Seven stories that were unfolding throughout the season. They were all over the place and completely incoherent episode to episode, you know? And it's just that sort of stuff. But it's also just all this very arbitrary stuff. Like, you know, it's, we keep bringing this up, especially when it comes to Discovery more than any other series, but they don't know the basic storytelling rule of show, don't tell. But just moments like, you know, like uh, Rios announcing to Dr. Teresa, like, I never had a father figure, but now I do. Sean Luke is my father figure. And then he goes and approaches him in the finale <laughs> and says, you're my father figure. Yeah. I'm like, where did that come from? Like, it's just, it, it's because he said it out loud. It, 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 we never witnessed any of those moments throughout the run of the season, like, or even season one as well. I, I just, it's, it's, it's such bad writing, like incredibly bad. Yes. Um, one of my favorite moments, not 
Picard the character related, but in terms of like just bad one thing we said often was we compared Star Trek Picard to CW superhero shows, which I don't think was really fair, honestly. <laughs> I also, um, in retrospect, don't feel as well about, you know, comparing it to, say, like, action-based shows, like kind of kind of the, you know, the junkier action shows. When I was watching it this time, I was really thinking about, you remember back in the days, before Star Trek kind of had this resurgence and you're seeing all your favorite stars back in, you know, expensive Star Trek shows, you would sometimes see them pop up on, like, very sad, like, sci-fi movie originals and things like that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah, that is what Star Trek Picard feels like to me. They get better paychecks, so God bless them all for that. But in terms of the quality, it is those types of TV shows or movies you would see advertised. You're like, oh, no, it's come to this. It's come to this. Just the cinematography, um, the editing. Yeah. I. One of my favorite moments. It, I'm sorry to say it. I, like, just the directing as well, and I know that's sacrilege because you know Jonathan Frakes uh, directed a couple episodes. But uh, what what was one of your favorite moments, Cam? Okay, so we're not going to do deep dives on like all the plot developments of this uh, season <laughs> because we did that before. Yeah. But I had not really tracked before the whole Rios badge thing that leads into ice. <laughs> okay, <laughs> where Rios, as you recall, falls, cracks his head, winds up in a clinic, a clinic, not like an asylum or something, a health clinic. Yeah. yeah. And he doesn't have his badge because the doctor's child has the badge. Yeah. And so Rios wants to get the badge back. It's his personal property. The doctor says, no. No, you can't have it back. I'm going to put it on the fridge next to these cookies. (laughs) Like, what? This is a clinic. This is a patient who hit his head. He has no, like, he doesn't have to stay here. He can leave. But you will not give him his personal property back. And so that badge is then there. For when Ice shows up and takes him away. It's entirely manufactured so that the, uh, you know, Seven and Raffi can't get hold of Rios and you can have this little Ice subplot. Which, by the way, was that much more annoying on the revisit because not only are none of the Ice officers any sort of dimensional characters, not even the guy who he spends time in the cell with. You don't even get that person's story, which maybe would have fleshed out the human aspect of Star Trek. Nonetheless, put that all aside. Look at the complications they had to jump through with that stupid comm badge. And that is just like... There is a level of badness to that that is embarrassing, and I'm just really shocked it even got through a professional writer's room. Well, Cam, don't worry, because, you know, after he cracks his head open, and he's then detained by ice, he soon after breaks out of a bus that's going to transport him to a sanctuary, and within three hours, he's hanging out at a gala, and he's announcing to Rafi, I love the 21st century. <laughs> huh? What? I guess he really liked her cookies from the fridge. Uh, uh, well, look, Cam, there, there's the matchbooks. See this? Light a match. I love this century. I'm just like, oof. Like, it's just such, like, it, it, like you said, Cam, like, I don't know how any sort of competent writer, like, puts this to page like it's just like i i i'm i feel like i'm just like beating like below like my weight level here but these people are paid professionals and okay so you you recall um at the end of last year i recounted you know my my top 10 favorite uh television series yeah and then i recounted my top 20 yeah 
And then at a certain point, you you asked me like, "Oh, uh, what about Lower Decks?" I was like, "I well, no, it doesn't it doesn't make the list." I like, I'm not even sure if Lower Decks would make my top thirty or forty. And it's not because I did not enjoy Lower Decks. It's not because it's not a show that I, I really adore, especially as like a Star Trek pod podcaster for what like eight years now, um, thereabouts. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just there's so much well produced, well written television on the air nowadays. That you almost kind of think like, oh, even if it's like so-so television, it's not that hard to produce. Cam, I've never watched such a terribly made TV show uh, in, in like, I like I don't even remember. Like, I, I would rather like watch how the folks behind Models Inc. did their craft <laughs> than I would Star Trek Picard. I'll give you a really good example in terms of maybe people are just like, don't quite understand what we mean, but like if you are a professional TV show and you are a writer's room, think of the past TNG ensemble episodes, okay? Think about how every character played a function. One of the big building points in this season is setting up all the characters at this gala where Renee Picard is going to be there. It's set up like a heist. You've got Agnes going in to infiltrate to get them access. What does each member of the team do when they are at that gala? Okay. So off the top of my head, uh, mm-hmm. Picard is pretending to be a security guard, and he gives a pep talk to Renee. Mm-hmm. Uh, Important, yep. Gerardi needs to create a distraction after she gets detained and needs to like kind of plug into the security system to let everyone else in to complete their parts. Mm-hmm. And Also important. Yeah. And then Rafi hangs around. And then mm-hmm. Seven hangs around. And then Talon yep. hangs around. Uh, oh, and then, don't forget, Gerardi, she starts singing. And the band knows the exact song and arrangement <laughs> of a cover from the 1980s. Yeah, for like a 400-year-old song. <laughs> And also, of course, Rios. Rios hangs around. He doesn't have anything to do either. Well, he he looks at a box of matches and declares that he loves this camp. Nobody does anything. No. Like, there's no point. And this is a heist. This is being built up as, like, the way they're framing it. Maybe they, you know, maybe this isn't the Ocean's Eleven episode of Star Trek. Uh, that would be bada bing, bada bang. Sure. But they are setting up as a heist. They are telling you through storytelling, through what we've gleaned from, you know, years and years and years, decades of film and TV is that this is like a heist caper story in which, in theory, every player should play a utilitarian function within the grand heist. Nope. It is a group of people standing around while Picard and Agnes basically do things. We just did a Deep Space Nine classic episode review of Bada Bing Bada Bang. I think we found that uh, beyond... Bashir, who all he really had to do is uh, put some uh, uh, some sort of magic potion into a drink that a hologram would sip on. Um, everybody else had a lot to do. And it's because the writers said, hey, let's make everyone utilitarian. Let's put some thought into this. Cam, I completely forgot that Seven of Nine was even at that gala until like hmm. two scenes later when we end up at the clinic i'm like whoa jerry ryan you're wearing a nice dress did not see you or notice you at all 
wearing that like wonderful dress at the gala. I'm just like, cause she wasn't doing anything. She wasn't performing any sort of function. There's no need to have her there. I'm just like, it, it's, you can tell that the writers are just kind of yada, yada, everything that they did here. Yeah. I was actually, I didn't remember either that like seven, when you look at the first two episodes, I think maybe three episodes of the season, it really is setting up seven to have a pretty significant story through the season Mm -hmm. that's completely dropped. Like she's getting a ton of screen time that I had not remembered at all, really setting up like these, you know, kind of fears of, you know, relationships and how anti-Borg she was. All that stuff is being set up in those first two or three episodes completely gone completely jettisoned and that was a real revelation one of the biggest revelations i had in the revisit so okay maybe you and i want to get into the character journeys in a moment but before you get there like i do want to touch on another plot slash story Mm -hmm. and help guide me through this i think i've kind of figured out what q was (laughs) up to this season so cam the idea is that Borg Queen Jurati, and, and let's, we're going from episode one. Yeah. It was the grandfather paradox. She was always meant to go back in time and become Borg Queen Jurati. Right. She shows up and creates this situation in which they want to blow up their warp cores, you know, self-destruct and this armada, you know, is destroyed and at that very second q who's dying decides he's going to take picard and four of his least closest friends (laughs) true yeah (laughs) i I made a note i said why does q care about this crew (laughs) i don't know into an altered dimension that is created when q goes back in time and mm-hmm. tries to talk out Picard's ancestor from going on this mission while simultaneously talking to one Adam Sung and trying to get him to stop this mission as well, all in the hopes that in this alternate timeline, Picard would figure out that he needs to go back in time to 2024 to convince his ancestor to go on this mission. And in the meantime, there just happened to be a supervisor who looked identical to his Romulan refugee servants that he couldn't really make a move on. And so coincidences out of all coincidences, the supervisor looks identical. And so Picard has feelings and then he also has these existential experiences diving into his psyche that makes him realize maybe he should not blame himself so much for uh, his mother's suicides that occurred when he was a child and the self-realization that he's been closed off to long-term relationships. And the reason Q is doing this is because Q is dying as we would say in our own very primitive parlance and Mm -hmm. he is doing this for Picard because this omnipotent being who's dying okay uh has decided that Picard is among his favorite sorts of beings 
that he's encountered. And Q says, I figured I don't like I'm dying alone. I don't want you to die alone. Um, I guess Q is forgetting the fact that he had a wife and he, he created a child in uh, that episode, <laughs> of, or two episodes of Star Trek Voyager. Um, yeah, that's true. So am I accurate that that's the plan? Like, if I'm getting it right, which I think I've kind of grasped it, is that not the most convoluted plotting you could ever imagine from any Star Trek story ever told at this point? Well, what you have to do is actually sit there when it's all over and take notes through each one to really map out specifically like what the journey was because they obscure it. I mean, we've talked enough about obscured motivations about the character throughout, but when you go back and actually like, because one thing, you know, if you see a movie with a twist, I don't know, Sixth Sense, Usual Suspects, something like that, and you go back and watch from the very beginning, you can see the seeds being planted and mm-hmm. how it all works to that moment. Whereas that was the one thing I was the most interested in going back and watching the early Q stories, or you know, in this season. And I was just like making notes of like, he's just talking vague things. He's saying like, welcome to the very end of the road not taken. And you're like, <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, that's like a riddle. Um, and I, I just made a note, like, this season, as of like maybe episode four or five, could be that Picard was terrified of balloons and had never had the joy <laughs> of running, frolicking with a balloon in his hand. Mm. And you would have to change absolutely nothing mm. from like the first, I don't know, six or seven episodes. Yeah. It, the entire story could still pay off with Picard frolicking with a balloon in the final episode of the season and nothing that Q said that led to this entire convoluted series of circumstances to get that kind of epiphany for Picard at the end. You didn't have to change any dialogue Q said throughout the course of it at all. Kim, is this like, let's say you have a uh, an ant farm. And yes, you got, you got <laughs> one of your favorite ants in there, you know? Ants in Mount. And you realize... <laughs> Ants, ants and mountains. <laughs> um, thank you, thank you. I'm here all week, folks. <laughs> are, are you going to go through all these steps to ensure that your ant um, is able to hook up one day? Like, I don't know. It's just like, I just, I don't buy it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Think about this, Cam. <laughs> I want to create like some sort of video. I'll, I'll try to do it somehow. Um. One of the last few moments, Q and Picard. Q's like, finish that sentence, Jean-Luc. Why me? Why all these years? <laughs> well, you're my favorite. Smash cut to Q slapping Picard in the face in episode two. Just slapping him so hard yeah. that he's bleeding from his nose. I'm just like, okay, well, you can make the argument like he's uh, something's wrong with him. He's dying. I mean... It's just, it doesn't make any sense. It's just, it's, why, why, why does Q even care this much? I don't buy it. it. For me, it's like Q's just always been having fun as a trickster. It's it, it's not through like genuine, like, um, passion or emotion for Picard. Um, it's more like, hey, this is fun to mess with these folks. And I don't know. It's curiosity sometimes. Curiosity. I think just like general curiosity. I think that's yeah. a perfect, <laughs> curiosity. Uh, <laughs> The one thing I can say that is maybe like thematically a good idea that I don't think is delivered in the season, but maybe they were trying for a little bit, is that the whole point of Q when he began on TNG was that humanity was on trial. 
And so there's something maybe interesting about this being at the very end of his life, wanting to, like, create a very human act, which is Picard finding love. Like, that's a very human desire. That Q would recognize the importance of that is kind of the journey of that character. But that is me jumping over a lot of gaps to kind of get to that realization, as opposed to the journey of the character throughout the season in which he's barely even in the show. Okay, let's go character by character. Um, I think, did we tackle Q's journey? Like, do you think that's kind of figured out at this point? Or is there anything we should add? I think so. Okay. I mean, his his farewell scene is very nice. You can tell it's two great actors opposite each other. I just wish it had been based in a show that wasn't silliness and nonsense. Okay. Can we jump over to, we'll focus more on the um, main characters, but out of all the other recurring characters, maybe touch on Guinan. This is a thing that mm. continues to baffle me. It's because of Gerardi's appearance in the first episode as the Borg Queen, that confirms to me that this is kind of kind of one of those causality loops. This is always meant to happen this way, right? Yeah. And, you know, the, the, whether it's the, you know, gunshot or the bullet holes in the Picard estate, you know, it's caused by those Borg mercenary drones, right? Mm-hmm. So those drones that, or so those bullet holes that, you know, one young Jean-Luc grew up seeing, it was caused by those Borg drones as well. And I know this has always been up for debate. This is always the way it was meant to be. But Guinan is very insistent that she's never met Picard before, despite the fact that we recall that San Francisco, you know, 1900s, adventure and and so the argument was well because of the alternate timeline that was created you never had the chance for prime timeline picard to go back and meet her in san francisco right but if this is a causality loop this is always the way it was meant to be then i have to call shenanigans on that so is it guinan just plain dumb <laughs> like when picard initially rolls into the bar and she's saying that she wants to leave earth now look at you know homelessness this is why she's got to leave like i and the answer is like there's no answer it's just like lack of like thought going into what's going on so so guinan's journey the best i can make of it is like when we see her played by whoopi goldberg in the in the premiere it's she already knew what unfolded. That's why she has like the photo of Rios in the back of her bar. It was always meant to happen that way. <laughs> True. So she had to be just plain dumb when we saw her like in the young version and like just not knowing who Picard was. But the Kim in that episode, we spent like 40 minutes of her just saying like, no, I don't believe you or I don't want to get involved with this or no, no. And I'm just like. It was just like it was just restacking the same information again and again and again. It's just it's just like her journey just doesn't make any sort of sense to me. Just from like I, I, I prefer to follow characters' journeys much more than kind of like their their plotting, but it doesn't make sense for me either way what's going on with her. Because I think she was just had to fake it. I, like I don't know. Am I am I off base? No, I don't think you are at all. I think what happened was the writers they wanted Guinan in the show, and I, I suspect that someone said, wouldn't it be interesting, because if you look at TNG, 
Guinan was always this sort of all-seeing character that gave advice to Picard and various other crew members. And my guess is they they brought up, what about a young Guinan where Picard is more a mentor figure? And it was like, oh, oh, that's good. Oh, that could be really be interesting. Boom, that's where the idea stopped. <laughs> it's like they were like, okay, we've got young Guinan. Yeah. She's angry. Picard can inspire her to stay on Earth. And that's it. And it doesn't make any sense. As you said, like the causality loop and all time travel stuff is already convoluted. I mean, you can pick apart, um, you know, Back to the Future, or Terminator, or all that sort of stuff. But like, it's like this one really doesn't make sense. Um, and they don't even really all this stuff with like the time zero stuff. They don't acknowledge that within the show. At the very least, they have this very hand wavy moment about Picard seeing imagining his mother as an old woman which explains that appearance in like early TNG where his mother is like an elderly woman, but they never deal at all with the Guinan stuff. I think they just want young Guinan. That's all that matters is getting young Guinan on the show. I think in the writer's heads, they've headcanoned it as well. We have the Confederation as the alt timeline. So that's why Picard and company never went back to San Francisco. Yeah. I think that's how they've imagined it. But the thing is, when you think about like this causality loop and the fact that we saw Girardi in episode one as the Borg queen, then that just kind of throws it all out of the, uh, you know, kind of th- just throws it all out of the water there. And it's just, it just doesn't make sense. And it's just like, it's creating all these unnecessary headaches. Um, speaking of Picard and his parents, uh, remember we had uh, the wonderful James Callis uh, uh, playing his father, yeah. And uh, there's that moment in Picard's mind where he's like, where, uh, what is uh, Picard's father's name? Uh, it's not. Oh, I don't remember that one. Okay. Well, I put you on the Papa spot. Picard. Uh, Papa Picard. <laughs> Papa says, uh, uh, yes, uh, you've lived much longer than me, but I still have all my hair. Uh, remember when we saw Papa Picard in Tapestry and he's a very, very elderly bald man? And mm, and he also yeah, has a French accent. <laughs> it's yeah. like uh, I, I'm like, where is this coming from? Like, I just it, it just to me, it's it, it's so little thought put into what's going on on the part of the writers. Like, are they high? Are they on mushrooms as they're writing this show? That's I I don't know how to explain it. One of my favorite moments is when the mom says to Picard very dismissively. That you know your brother toils away at school. I'm like, wait, <laughs> shouldn't Picard be in school? Why isn't yeah. this kid at school? <laughs> well, no, because Robert had to come r- wrestle in the mud uh, later on. Yeah, right? it's it's weird. Yeah, like that, the parents stuff. There's a sequence. It's still tied to characters where the husband and the wife, you know, mom and dad, are having like a talk about the mom's, you know, depression and mental illness, and. The dialogue writing is so atrocious. It does not sound like two human beings having a conversation. It is so like kind of staged and awkward and like they're trying to write this kind of heightened, almost old timey English. It's so strange. Well, Cam, um, another character to tackle here. Uh, well, why don't we go backwards a little bit? Uh, you know, Dr. Adam Soon. He actually does have a character journey, kind of sorta. Like he's a, he has his license revoked, and he's trying to save his latest clone, and he's willing to do anything to keep his, 
scientific advancements going. And so he's willing to run over a man in a Tesla and use some sort of uh, poisonous fingerprint to kill off the Romulan Talon supervisor. He's willing to commit murder and ultimately Corey departs and says, I'm going to the public library with my VR goggles. See ya, dad. Mm. Um, he has a journey, barefoot. I guess. She leaves barefoot. Barefoot, by the way, yes. Barefoot. Where'd she In get LA. her shoes? <laughs> yeah. Where did she get her shoes by the time she ended up at the public library sitting on the floor? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and I were in LA recently. I wouldn't be walking around barefoot. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, no. He has a journey, but does it feel like a an interesting journey or something like um, like does it feel earned? I should say. No, and a lot of it's obscured in terms of like his resources because we see him get basically all of his funding cut. As you said, he's like disgraced scientist. I think was on the newspapers and all these like really ridiculous headlines, but like. Somehow this man has, like, complete access to NASA. He has complete access to, like, a team of mercenaries. I've never quite understood what Adam Sung's status is in society because he seems to have a lot of pull, a lot of pull. But at the same time, he's this, like, disgraced scientist working alone feverishly on this project no one believes in. I think I could fix Adam Sung. I don't want to be on the Picard Season 2 writer's room, but I think what I would have done, if it were up to me... Uh, is I would have introduced Adam Soong in the second episode, Penance. All the stuff with um, Seven's husband, gone. Like, that character is a nothing. You set up Adam Soong as your antagonist, and you have him as the sort of overlord of this alternate timeline. When they go back... Well, there, there, there is a 400-year difference, though. Oh, I know, I know. But he is there. Uh, oh, actually. Well, oh, no. Because I'm thinking, like, I would have played it more as him as a time traveler. Okay. Or or maybe at the very least... Okay, so it's not Adam Soong. It's, like, an ancestor of Adam Soong who goes back in time and actually is in communication with... Well, that would have been Alton Soong. At the, yeah. So it would have been sure. Alton Soong in this period. Sure. More for Brent Spiner to do. Alternate timeline, sure. Alton Soong has gone evil and is overseeing this and goes back and is com- communicating with Adam Soong. Because at least then there's a connection with Picard. It's a little wobbly, like we need to workshop this one, but I think at least it would give a little more of a connection between your hero and your antagonist. Sure. <laughs> I, I just I, Here's what bugs me, though. Is you have moments at the gala where like Adam Soong approaches Picard, and Picard's just stunned because he looks so much like Data. Cam, mm-hmm. this is a world of coincidences in which Picard... Uh, okay, <laughs> so you have... Um, Orla Brady playing Talon, who's identical to uh, Loris. You have one, uh, Adam Sung, who is played by the same actor who played Data, and they look very similar. And then Q also sends him back to, or uh, guides them on the way to the same period in which you have one, Isa Brionis, playing uh, a character named Corey who looks identical to the main character of season one after one Jean-Luc. This is the most coincidental time period that Picard could have ever been sent back to. Yes, it indeed is. It's very, uh, it's head scratching. I had a question actually just about Talon for a second. They reveal that she's Romulan and she seems to like indicate that the uh, supervisors are Romulans. Was Gary Seven a Romulan? No, I I did not get the sense that uh, 
the supervisors are Romulan. I think what she okay. said is we we usually supervise our own, but in some cases exceptions are made, and that's why she has that technology that masks her ears. But if she uses it, like there's an eight hour period in which she can like they don't function. Fair enough. Fair care. enough. Yeah. Um. Okay. So uh, yeah, jumping off soon. Uh. We have Isa Brionis. She's playing uh, multiple characters yet again. And, uh, well, uh, one dodges, or uh, Soji, I should say, her character arc lasted um, exactly three and a half minutes of screen time in which uh, looks like she's going to be getting Randy with the Deltons, which uh, hats off to her. I would totally be doing the same thing. And then you cut to Corey Soong about halfway through the season and yet again, she is Isabrionis finding out that she is maybe just some sort of scientific experiment, which we had seen in the previous season. And being manipulated. Being manipulated. So she figures that out and runs away into the public library, puts on the VR goggles, and then encounters Wesley Crusher, who's now a traveler. And Cam, why does Wesley want Corey Soong, out of all people, to join him as a traveler? I cannot answer that question. <laughs> I have nothing. He wants a girlfriend. He like oh, uh, Will Wheaton is what like fifty years old now. Uh, Isa Brionis might be twenty five. It's you know what I think this is an ode to the original Traveler and the keen interest he took in a uh, much 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 younger person there. So maybe that's what's going on. Uh, these I, travelers doesn't matter uh if you're played by Eric Menyak or Will Wheaton, it's always a little creepy. And Will Wheaton he's beaming throughout that whole entire scene when he's talking about the mythology of the travelers. He looks like the happiest human being who has ever <laughs> acted on screen. And so he maybe I feel like yeah, he's just kind of like making up excuses for reasons to take Corey with him. It's like, oh, you're so special. <laughs> um, yeah, you'd be an amazing traveler. Yeah, you'd be the best. Come on. <laughs> uh, yet, yet again, I, I, I don't think he did a very good performance here. Uh, I, no. I, I hate to say it. Like, I like Will Wheaton. I like Wesley Crusher. I just, I don't know. Like, this seemed like a, a genuinely bizarre performance that I think Will Wheaton was directing himself in. I don't think it was like the director of the episode telling him how to play this character that he's known for 35 years. No, no, it, I don't know. There's a, a real sense of a lot of actors directing themselves on this season of Picard. And I, I don't know why. I don't know what was going on because they've said Akiva Goldsman was basically show running season two Picard, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I've heard things also that he was very busy setting up strange new worlds as well. Was it just like people filling in for him while he was just busy a lot? That's why I mentioned earlier, I think it was just too many cooks in the kitchen. It's just yeah. like you, you have like 50 different like executive producers and it's just everybody chiming in. That's why we had like, okay, uh, I, I know you haven't been watching uh, The Last of Us on HBO, but uh, episode three just aired and it's been getting a lot of accolades. But the thing is, you know, spoiler alert, it's more of kind of a, uh, it's an episode only three episodes in and it's almost kind of a standalone and i just think that there's like th there's no standalone episodes in what you just carve out time like this is going to be a rios episode 
this is going to be a Girardi episode. It's more like, yeah, we are balancing four or five different storylines all at once, and let's just jam them all in together. I guess the closest we got was the gala episode. Right. So. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so after Corey, uh, we have uh, Rios, which, yeah, we kind of touch on his character arc in which he's the captain of a starship, and then he tells us he never belonged anywhere and he's going to stay behind 21st century earth. And the reason for that just seems again, yet incredibly arbitrary. It's obviously it's like Dr. Teresa, who's uh, he grew to really, really be enamored with after what? Three uh, days, 36 hours, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. And so he like, Okay, I, I mean, like, the thing is, I, he has a journey. I just don't buy it based on what we've seen of the character so far. Remember in the Gala episode, uh, two of one, it's like Rafi literally has to come over and say, and he's like, ever since you met that doctor, I've never seen you smile so much. I'm <laughs> like, what are you talking about? He was just like, you just got him out of the ice bus like two hours ago before he showed up at the Gala. And all of a sudden she's making connections between like the... Uh, the clinic doctor and him beaming i'm just like again it, it it's they're telling not showing you know they have to have like rafi telegraph exactly why he might be happy after being <laughs> detained by ice uh just hours earlier and it's also just this insta relationship it's like here's this doctor with a cute kid you are instantly in love And that is that. Like, don't question it. And Star Trek traditionally does its work. It shows organic relationships. Um, We often call out the ones that do feel clunky. And this is a case of just, like, it is the 80s fairy tale. There's a ton of movies from the 80s that do this kind of thing. And this is an 80s fairy tale. It's like this perfect woman who apparently has no family or friends or anything that is a complication in her life. Just this kid. And instantly bonds with this stranger... This stranger who apparently has free reign of her clinic in no time. This guy's just like wandering into offices and stuff like that, bringing his friends into her, uh, you know, med room. I'm like, she's known this person like 24 hours. There's even a point in this up in the uh, later in the season where she where he explains shock to her and tells her what to do to deal with shock. I'm like, maybe the medical doctor should be the one telling you how to deal with shock, Rios. <laughs> Well, okay, so ultimately he decides to stay behind arbitrarily in 21st century Earth, and we find out he dies in a bar fight. So that's his journey. We don't even see. Romantically. Yeah. He he dies romantically with a smile on his face and like a cigar in his mouth. I'm like, okay, right. Yeah. Um, Cam, Elnor. <laughs> what is Elnor's <laughs> journey this season? <laughs> Uh, uh, he dies and then he's brought back to life. <laughs> like, like he does. Like Elnor. Like uh, I think he's the first one that we've talked about so far who literally just does not have a journey whatsoever. No, and I mean we all know the fridging concept typically applied to female characters that are killed to give a male character motivation. Elnor, it's the similar kind of function. His role on the season is to die in episode. I guess it's the start of episode three where he's actually dead. Yep. And that is Rafi's motivation for the season. That's his entire function on the show. We have him showing up, you know, as like uh, 
someone escaping from an ice bus that Raffi sees. We have the uh, emergency command hologram where he shows up and kills a bunch of people with a sword. But other than that, his arc is really just tied to dying and reappearing at the very end and apparently being one of Picard's family members at a table. Cam, they're family because Picard declares it as they're going to sip some drinks. So that that's that. What? I guarantee once that TNG crew comes around, Picard is kicking Elnor to the bricks. <laughs> <laughs> El who? Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Great line from Q. <sighs> okay. So uh, can we just do Seven and Rafi uh, as a block? Because as you said, like, it seemed as if they're setting Seven up for something. And they don't do anything mm-hmm. uh, with her of any interest with the Borg Queen after episode two. Like, I don't even know if they share lines or exchange lines after that. Uh, she does not do anything interesting with Q, who she had encountered in the Delta Quadrant. I don't even think she acknowledges that she knows Q. He does not acknowledge that he knows Seven. So no. it's a season driven by Rafi's motivation, which is like Elnor is dead. The only way to get him back is to complete this mission, and it's just a guessing game whether that might bring him back. And so by the very end of the uh, season, she's holding Q by the throat as if she's going to murder this dying, omnipotent, non-corporeal being. It just, when you have like characters act stupid to make a point, it just, it, it, it irks me so much. Like, like, are you a moron? Like, are you simple, Rafi? And <laughs> so, yeah. I guess she has an arc in that, or is it an arc, or is it like she has a journey? And like, she's motivated by Elnor's death. Yeah. And then she and her girlfriend bicker nonstop for a full season. And then they randomly declare their undying love for each other for reasons I'm not really certain because they spend the whole time like yapping at each other and then after holding q by the throat um q brings elnor back like these are not journeys like seven and raffi i i think as a travesty because i like both those characters Mm -hmm. but they 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 had no journey at all to experience this season no i mean there's an over uh arcing element of the season which is just like you know, obviously loneliness and love and kind of like forgiving yourself and your past. So it's like, I can kind of see how they're doing that with Raffi. Although you'd think maybe she would talk about her son a little bit. I actually think that would be an interesting element. If you're going to have the Elnor death, like have Raffi talk about losing her son and then what losing Elnor means for that reason, as opposed to Raffi, you're so manipulative. Everyone has to be who you want them to be. (laughs) And I'm like, but there's already a baked in, storyline with Raffi as to why she would be so profoundly affected by the loss of Elnor, and they just completely ignore it. I thought that was really strange. And I, I also thought it was very strange the way they just completely sideline Seven when you are setting her up to do so much in the season. By the end, she's just kind of like an action character. There's a very weird moment. I don't think I clocked the first time we watched this, um, where she's like bursting into Soong's lab at the end, wielding a knife. Seven was going to knife Adam Soong to death, Tyler. <laughs> sure. Sure. 
I mean, it's a step up from the previous season when she was murdering, when she was a serial killer seven. Yeah, it's true. And Rappy says, seven, you always run away. And I'm like, is that a seven trait? Is that what I think of when I think of seven, a character who always runs away? Hmm. Cam, it's called character growth. Because she went off and joined the Fenris Rangers. I don't know that that's really running away if Starfleet's like, we are not accepting you. And she's like, okay, well, I'm going to find somewhere to go where I am accepted and needed. Makes sense to me. Don't really regard that as running away. We saw that, like, when um, Icheb was killed by Bajazel, Seven didn't run away. She stormed in there and gunned everyone down. Not exactly running away. So there's nothing even baked within the fabric of Star Trek Picard the series that would lend itself to Seven, you always run away. Well, Cam, I will give it to uh, one Agnes Gerardi. She did have a journey. She had a legit character journey. Mm-hmm. Is it one that you were particularly invested in, or was it one that you uh, did not cringe at between the musical numbers and the battery sequence <laughs> in what she's got like battery acid dripping from her mouth, and then she runs over the roofs of cars to do like a ninja kick? Yeah. <laughs> like, and it just goes from there. I mean, I like the uh, back and forth between her and the board queen. Yeah, You know, but I just, uh, it's just, again, I didn't really, it's a board queen declaring yet again, telling, not showing you're lonely. You've always been lonely and you've never fit anywhere. It's like, okay, uh, sure. Like news to me, uh, I didn't realize that was the defining characteristic of Agnes, but if you're telling us that, I guess we have to believe it. Well, I think the problem was season one, we walked out of that season being like, we don't really know who Agnes is. She was under like the spell of this, you know, Romulan, I can't remember what the exact term was, but the uh, the vision of the future. So yeah. she the was admonition. like killing her boyfriend and all that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. The admonition. And so she like killed her boyfriend. And um, so it, it was all very like plot mechanic function within season one. And I remember that was one thing we were like, well, we like. Allison Pill, we like the way this character is kind of introduced in the show. Season two will hopefully give her more to do that's at least like a, um, a, a, a version of Agnes who is in control of herself. Boy, <laughs> nope. <laughs> because she's, I think, interesting for maybe the first few episodes. And then once she's taken over by, by the Borg Queen, it's not really Agnes anymore. Like she's under the spell of the Borg no. Queen for a great section of it. Like the Corey Soong um versus um soji stuff it's doing the same thing with agnes where they're replicating her arc from season one uh in a way that in some ways is better like i actually really enjoy her dynamic with the board queen at times i don't like when it gets a little too like comedy duo ish but when it's the board queen in full seductress mode and agnes kind of having you know these vulnerable moments because of what the board queen is suggesting I kind of like that stuff, and I think it's somewhat well-played, but where it goes when i got song numbers and I've got very awkward fight scenes, all that stuff's bad. And when Agnes shows up at the very end and the mask comes away from the Borg Queen, and it is that terrible-looking CG shot, like photoshopped <laughs> shot of um, Alison Pill in Borg Queen digital makeup, it's so laughable that I, I really feel bad for her. I think, like, Alison Pill... You know, we were excited when she got cast because it's someone with quite a pedigree. Like, it's a pretty big get to get her on a Star Trek show. 
And it's almost like they were challenged to be like, how bad a material can we give her? How many ridiculous things can we get her to do on screen? Because I think it's tough with this show, but I think she might get the most embarrassing material across the two seasons of any actor. Oh, 100%. But I'll I'll put it this way. I was not a fan of the performances of Brent Spiner or Will Wheaton. Mm -hmm. I think given the material she had, Allison Pill hit it out of the ballpark both seasons. It's true. So, okay. Um, Orla Brady as Laris and Talon. Uh, sure, they had journeys. Laris got like uh, head swerved um, <laughs> in like the first episode, and then by episode ten, uh, Picard's not quite making a move, but leaving things open. Is that a journey for her? It's really more of like she's there for Picard's sake. Uh, so I guess Talon's journey is getting to meet the woman she supervises for the first time ever. This is the only timeline in which she would ever get to meet Renee Picard. That's according to Q. Yeah. Um, her journey, it's like, it's not romantic in nature between her and Picard or anything like that. It's like mostly her very confused <laughs> as to why Picard keeps calling her Laris the entire season. She's often like a little bit of a guide. Because she can help Picard through his yeah. psychological issues over the course of those really grim episodes, um, Monsters and Hide and Seek, which are pretty punishing on the rewatch. But her basic role, yeah, is to have access to Picard's kind of psyche and to help him have these moments of realization. So it's not the most interesting of material. I honestly think maybe my favorite scene of the entire season is quite possibly the fireside chat of um, Laris and Picard, which is like in the first like... Episode one? Episode one, probably the first 15 minutes <laughs> where it's two adults yeah. having a conversation, yeah. which feels like something I might get in an episode of Star Trek. Because like you and I both said yeah. when they were announcing Picard the series, we didn't want like a taxidermied version of TNG. Like that would just be embarrassing. We wanted to move forward with the characters. Clearly it's going to have a different aesthetic because it's 2022 or whatever year it was, 2020, or I can't even remember when Picard launched. Um, this is the sort of thing I like, though, where it's characters having conversations about like who they are as people. That stuff's gone after like the first 20 minutes of uh, this season, but I did like that scene a lot. Well, I'm glad that they had this wonderful woman performer who is just there to serve a purpose for the lead male character which was Jean-Luc or Gollum Picard uh he had a journey and Cam I remember listening to our first episode way back when about a year ago in which we dissected uh uh episode one and we both said I just hope this season isn't about Picard learning how to love and <laughs> well that's what the entire season added up to be and this is all about Picard learning to let go of guilt and learning to open himself up. So he had an arc. The problem is it's not an arc that was done in any sort of way that you could describe as compelling whatsoever. You have the gravitas that is Patrick Stewart. But beyond that, you have Picard constantly written as a very dawdling character, always behind the eight ball. I, mm -hmm. I, I didn't care about you know android picard's journey i just it felt 
it felt just almost voyeuristic and like all the domestic or perceived domestic abuse coupled with mm-hmm. you know, the scenes of the suicide and how that was handled and how mental health was handled in this. Like I just, I, I was genuinely embarrassed. This is, you could tell that the, the creators behind the show thought they were telling a very important story. I'm just like, well, yeah, it's an important story, but you're completely mishandling it and, and doing it in a, just a, very very insensitive way boy those uh flashes to the uh situation with his mother throughout the season those play really well on the rewatch huh oh god especially in episode one it, yeah. it's, it's great like, you and i we watched episode one uh why do you why, why am i keep blanking on the name of uh oh the stargazer yeah and uh we're like oh yeah this is a great premiere but the thing is when i was watching that in this latest watch and every time we had the flashes to his childhood and his mom, I was, I was like, Oh my God. Oh mm-hmm. my God. Like I was getting angry in an episode that I actually enjoyed the first time through. And you don't find out the resolution to that until episode uh, nine of the season. Like it's really obnoxious. Just stretching things out. Just yeah. Filler, 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 which was indicative of this season as a whole. Another thing I didn't pick out the first time through, but like Renee Picard talks about her motivation for becoming an explorer of space. It's because like one of her, I think it was like one of her parents died and she put a rocket next to them in their coffin. And I'm like, oh my God, the Picard lineage is now, thanks to this show, the Picards are only driven to go to space because of trauma over dead relatives. Uh, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's trauma. Uh. Now that that like what we know from the Kurtzman era, at least with discovering Picard, is everybody is a hundred percent just motivated by trauma. Yes, my greatest fear was in the first episode, Stargazer. Um, Picard mournfully says he's the last Picard, and I was like, "Don't you dare make season three about Picard having a child! I cannot take it." <laughs> uh, bring back that guy uh, from. I don't know, like the second to last episode of TNG, who uh, was rock climbing, and Damon Bach was trying to convince Picard that that was his uh, natural son. I'm for that. Just do it. I mean, we've seen the ultimate fan fiction moment in that Traveler Wesley moment, so like, anything's on the table. Just go crazy. Bring back Damon Bach, have him resolve the entire season in a monologue. I don't care. Cam, I wish season three was centered around Damon Bach getting his last revenge. Is is Amanda Plummer playing Damon Bach? Or someone with connections to Damon Bach? <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. I don't, I, yeah. Uh, th- this is what the Ferengi look like now in uh, the 25th century. Um, so, Cam, uh, yeah. I- I'm a solutions-oriented person. This is how you fix Star Trek Picard. Mm-hmm. You hire an entirely new writing staff. Mm-hmm and uh hope that you they can spin some sort of wheel that lands on some idea that works out for us but i, I you and i okay we are going to do an episode uh, next week that uh, kind of ties into some sort of anticipation for season 3 of Picard so we can dive a little bit deeper into that but cam how would you fix star trek picard at this point hmm I mean, there's the obvious things which we talked a lot about throughout the season, which is the um, not having all your A story, just plot connecting arc stuff. Yeah. Because that's when you get these really awkward chunks of episodes that have no beginning and end. That stuff's got to stop, I think, for this next season. Um, It's hard to tell people 
organic storytelling because like the writers, I'm sure the people writing Picard season two weren't sitting there going, we're writing artificial dialogue for these characters. In their minds, they're coming up with something that they think is meaningful or something or smart and it isn't. But focus back on the characters. Like you don't need all of the things building to drone attacks and whatever else is going on in the finale. Um, Deadly palm print stuff. It's all really ludicrous and silly. You don't need it. Like, focus on a central threat, decide what that is, and what does it mean to your characters? Because we've seen, like, where the characters go in this season, some of them barely go anywhere at all. Like, none of them are really impacted by the journey of what the central problem of the season is. And I think that is probably the biggest thing you need to have figured out really at the beginning of the development of your story, much less at the end. I just don't get the sense that the folks, whether it's the executives, uh, and I mean like studio executives or, you know, kind of the the lead creatives know how to do streaming television. It just doesn't feel as if this is their idea of what a serialized TV show would be like circa 1982, you know, just like those abrupt act breaks that would cut a scene in half to kind of the convoluted storytelling. This is very soap opera-ish in nature. And melodrama, yeah. Yeah, and the production values, just the cinematography looked like garbage as well. Uh, My understanding is that there is a new cinematographer for season three. (laughs) Thank the continuum. Yeah. I can't imagine it being worse because as you said, Cam, I agree with you. Like this... This looked like an incredibly cheap season. From what I understand, I mean, it's kind of on purpose because they broke seasons two and three at the same time, and they knew they were bringing back the entire TNG cast for the third season, so they really wanted to cut costs to make sure they had the budget for season three. Well, guess what? It shows. Yeah. And they lost viewers. Like, we know a lot of people, uh, you know, behind the scenes, we want to, like, bring in some past guests and everything to talk about season three Picard, you know, some for some perspectives outside of just the two of us. And one thing we've really come across is a lot of people never finished season two Picard. And I completely understand. And I've encountered that outside of the world of subspace transmissions as well. A lot of people did not make it through this season. And so it's like you delivered a kind of subpar cheap uh, dragged out story with the promise that season three would be great. Like, that doesn't really fly. Okay, Cam. So I guess the verdict's in. Um, if folks weren't clear one year ago, uh, we hate season two of Star Trek Picard. But I, um, it's funny. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we kept saying like, yeah, we're going to go into season three with an open mind. But yeah. after rewatching season two, I just have <laughs> my, my confidence has dwindled even more about the uh, team behind this series. But I, I'm like, I'm still going in with an open mind, but listening to our podcast, though, we kept saying like, okay, this is off to a good start, but we were still a little bit wary. But I think the thing is we got a little bit sucked in and gave them a little bit too much leeway. And about halfway through the season, we that's when we were like, oh, my God, this show is just off. The show is incompetent and it's off the rails. So. Uh, we might be a little bit more uh, cynical and a little bit more critical of season three, unless this show just really clearly, objectively, like blows our minds. 
The one thing I've seen, because as you've said in the past, Terry Metalis has said kind of all the right things about season mm-hmm. three Picard, but there was mm-hmm. a quote from him. He was talking about the, the recent final trailer they put out and he promised, don't worry, there's more action in season three Picard than there was in seasons one and two. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. well, did you fire your entire effects and choreography team from season <laughs> one and two? Because the action was terrible. So I don't want more of that. Thanks. I, I want people to sit around in rooms and, and talk to each other and debate things because somebody's motivation may differ than somebody else's motivation. People have goals that conflict with each other. That's what I want. You know, just, I don't know, I, I, I go back to an episode like Chain of Command Part 2 where we have Jellicoe um, in negotiations with the Cardassians in the Observation Lounge. And just how he's playing it so curiously, but it's kind of strategic on his part. I want stuff like that taking up 45 minutes of my time. I don't want like trauma porn or really poorly choreographed sequences in which Borg Queen Girardi is running across the roofs of cars with battery acid dripping down her her mouth. You know, it's just like... I just I don't know if they have a grasp on like what makes Star Trek like amazing. It's a little telling to me when you look at say like IMDb scores for episodes, and season two did not score anywhere near as well as season one. But when you go through and look up what's the highest rated episode of Star Trek Picard, it's Nepente from season one. Yeah, and uh, not a lot of um, fighting and explosions in that particular episode, as far as I can recall. Just a lot of pizza. Yeah, pizza and characters talking about their relationships, showing organic growth as individuals, and kind of getting to be brought back up to speed with old favorites. People kind of like that stuff. (laughs) They tend to respond to it quite well. Well, things that people responded well to in the past uh, classic TNG episodes. Next week, Cam, in anticipation of Season 3 Picard premiere, we will be doing a classic uh, TNG episode uh, review. It will be a message in a bottle. One of those all-time kind of fun fan-favorite episodes. Uh, probably not on a top 10 list, but Kim, I mean, this this is such a great, great um, showcase of what makes Star Trek great. And it's a lot of talking, a lot of people being smart and showcasing their smarts. And uh, spoiler alert, uh, we'll be discussing Moriarty and maybe, uh, I don't know, we might see a little bit more Moriarty in season three of Picardy. <laughs> That's right. And you can, of course, find us on Twitter. I'm at Cam. V is in Very Bored by Tunnel Wandering Smith. You can find me at Reportin. That's R-E-P. P is in Picard season three. Please do better. O-R. T-O-N. Can't do worse, right? Right? <laughs> well, Cam, we, we, we said that at the end of season one of Picard. <laughs> like, <laughs> Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed.
Transfer complete.